Hello, this is the podcast of Chesbro Baptist Church. Uh, today's message is entitled Something Divine Among Them. We're going to look at the church at Antioch and see how they became a new people and how the church today should follow suit. Please enjoy. Alrighty, Acts chapter 13. We're going to read the first three verses of Acts chapter 13. One last time, I'm going to invite you to stand in respect and reverence for the word of God. We're going to read our three verses, pray, and then sit back down. The Bible says in Acts chapter 13 and verse number 1, Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and, Man- and uh, Manahim, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. The title of the message this morning is Something Divine Among Them. Something Divine Among Them. Let's pray. Dear Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I come to you today and I pray that you would be with us. I pray that the Holy Spirit would fill this place and that we'd feel the power of God on the service. I pray that us as children of God, Lord, I pray that we would seek to become closer to you, seek to become better Christians. Lord, we love you. We're here because of Jesus. Lord, I pray you'd be with us and give us a great service this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Have you ever felt like a fish out of water? I have felt like a fish out of water several times in my life. And I remember one of the times that I felt most like fish out of water is when I moved up to Chicago, up to Yankee land. And it was just such a culture shock. It's just so weird. They don't say, you know, down here we say, yes, sir, and yes, no, sir, and yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. And or you'd get the pop in the mouth if you didn't say it. But they don't say that kind of stuff up there. And I remember going up there when I went up there, all I had was my letterman jacket from high school and it was not enough. Okay, when coming off of Lake Michigan, 20 below, my little Letterman jacket wasn't, ki- wasn't, wasn't kicking it. It wasn't doing right, okay? And so not only that, but you go up there, and they don't have sweet tea anywhere. No place serves sweet tea. And then you're there for a year and a half, and you find out that Cracker Barrel is the only restaurant that, that serves sweet tea, but nobody ever orders it. And so when you do get it, it tastes terrible. And then you can't get any blue plate mayonnaise up there. I mean, talk about heresy. I had to use Hellman's. I still like Hellman's. I'm sorry. They converted me. But I couldn't even get any blue plate mayonnaise up there. And it was just such a culture shock being up there. It was so different. I'd never been out of the South before I moved up to Chicago. And it would just, what, and what was happening is my plausibility structure was being tested. It was being tested. What is, a, what is a plausibility structure? A plausibility structure is how you look at the world. 
When you look at something in your world and say, that makes sense. When you look at something in your world and say, oh, that's just, just, just that, that's how it should be. That's your plausibility structure, okay? And what happened is when, when I moved up there, mine was being tested. It was being challenged. Now, we as Christians, we watch the news, and man, we should be shocked at the world around us. I know sometimes we can grow callous to it. But we as Christians, you know, we can watch and see what's going on around us and be absolutely shocked at, at what's going on. And we look at things in the world and say, that's not right. That's not the way it's supposed to be. It's challenging our plausibility structure. We should be shocked as Christians about what's going on in the world around us. But at the same time, we need to be an example of how to do things different. We need to be an example of how of a different way, a different path. They need to look at us and how we live and it needs to shake them up. Just like we look at the world and see how they live and it shakes us up, they need to look at Christians and they need to look at the way we live and the way we live needs to shake them up. They need to look at this church and say, well, that's weird. That's a different way to live. That's a different way of doing life. It's a whole different path than I've been taught. It's a whole different path that I've been brought up in. That's what they need to say when they look at us. The world is big on individualism. I am looking out for number one. I am looking out for me, myself, and I. My whole goal in life is to get my degree, make a lot of money, and, and do my own thing. And it's all about promoting individualism, okay? And that's why you get a lot of loners, okay? I've been a loner before. Just go and keep my head down and do my own thing. And, and not kick up a fuss, get in, get out. Loner, being a loner is kind of comfortable, comfortable to me sometimes. But the Bible doesn't promote being a loner. The Bible promotes community. The Bible promotes being a part of a system of something greater. The Bible promotes being a part of a counterculture inside of a predominant culture. We are this counterculture. We're this plausibility structure inside of a prominent plausibility structure, the culture within a culture. And really, and they're Christians that take this idea of individualism, that take this idea of being a loner into the church. Being a loner in the church is not how God wants us to be. He doesn't want us to be a group of loners. Okay, he wants us to be a community. When Jesus looked out to the crowd and he said, you are the light of the world, I'm telling you here, he was speaking southern. Because what he, was, he meant to say was, y'all are the light of the world. Y'all are the light of the world. You guys, if you was up north, you guys, hey you guys, okay, but, you know, it's y'all. Y'all are the light of the world. We are the light of the world. Not just one individual person. I can light one candle in this room and pitch black and it'll light a little bit. 
But what if I lit 50 candles in this room? Man, you'd be able to see pretty good, wouldn't you? So it's not you, individual, are the light of the world. Y'all are the light of the world. We are the light of the world. And, that, and that's what he meant. You can make an impression on someone by how you live your life. We talked about that the other day with Brother Marcus and the guy he was training. And so, you know, you can, you can talk, you can, it's called lifestyle evangelism. You can, the way you can influence somebody by living different and being different, and they look at you and say, man, there's something different about you. Tell me what it is. That's a legitimate way to evangelize people. But you know what's greater than that? What does more is when we come together as a community and they see how we treat each other. That is a greater testimony, and it's more effective than an individual. Because how we come together and how we treat each other is how they know we're Christians. They will know us because of how we love each other. Okay? Jesus said they will know us by our love for one another. So how we interact as a community, as we interact as a people together is a greater testimony than just interacting with the world one-on-one. We are creating a community inside of our culture. We are creating a, a counterculture, our own plausibility structure, and in, inside this bigger culture, inside this predominant structure. And our culture, the one that we create, it shows that the God of the Bible is the one true God. That's what our culture shows. That's the way we treat each other. That's the way it shows, okay? That the God of the Bible is the one true God, okay? Um, that's how things are really going to change. You want to change things? That's how it's going to be done because that's how it was done in the Bible. That's how the churches in the books of, book of Acts changed the world. By doing what, I, what I'm about to tell you tonight, uh, tonight, today, I don't want to fast forward too fast, okay? You're not still going to be here tonight, I promise you, okay? But listen, how did they change the world? How did they change the Roman pagan world by doing this? By loving each other. By treating each other like this. That, that, that's how they did it. That's the way things are really going to change. The interactions that we have with each other and the interactions we have with the world. When our interactions embrace the gospel, amazing things can happen. You know, I've said this before. We think we're, being, we're, th we think we're persecuted today. And we really don't know what persecution really is. Because there was a time... When the Roman Empire was absolutely decimating the church. I mean, we're talking about stealing everything people have. We're talking about locking them in, in prison for the rest of their lives. I'm talking about a time in the church when Christians were being fed to lions. Being fed to lions. And then you have a guy like Caesar Hadrian who's doing all this to the church. And he doesn't understand why he can't snuff out Christianity. He doesn't understand 
why this little cult that he's been going hard against is, is taking over his empire, is changing his empire. He doesn't get it. He doesn't understand it. So this is an absolutely true story, okay? Atheist historians will corroborate this story. Caesar Hadrian got an, I've got to figure out what's going on here. So Caesar Hadrian sent a spy into the church. He sent an undercover spy to infiltrate the church to see what's going on. So this spy writes back to Caesar Hadrian after infiltrating, going undercover into the church. And here's what he wrote. They love one another. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a brother. And if there's any among them that are poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply the needy their lack of food. Such, O king, is their manner of life. And verily, this is a new people. And there is something divine in the midst of them. Wouldn't it be great if churches were like that still today? They're not. Most of them are not. But wouldn't it be great if churches were like that today? How can you destroy something like that? You can't. You can't destroy something like that. Man, they're taking over my, they're, they're, they're taking over, uh, my empire. I can't destroy them. Why? They love each other too much. They love each other too much to destroy them. You steal something away from somebody, somebody else is going to supply their need. You can't destroy something like that. So we are the light of this world. So let's look at where we're at. We're in southeast Louisiana. We're in Kentwood, Louisiana here. We've got a couple big metropolitan areas near us. Baton Rouge, New Orleans. We got some big, you know, some smaller cities, but cities close to our area here. You go south, you'll hit Amy. You go north, you'll hit Macomb. But then you draw in a little bit closer in here, and we're right here, Kentwood, Roseland. And you draw in a little closer here, and we've got this little community here called Chesbro Community. But then we've got all these other communities near us, Wilmer, Bolivar, Spring Creek, and we've got all these little, little communities around. Some of them, if you blink fast, you'll have driven through it. Okay? And, and so this is the little community that we live in. This, this, is, this, is our, this is where we're at. So how do we become the thing that God wants us to be in our community right here? How do we become that? How do we become this thing that God wants us to be? How do we become the light to shine in this community that God wants us to be in? Well, I've got three points for you this morning, okay? Point number one, we have to fight for harmony amongst ourselves. We have to fight for harmony amongst ourselves. Let's read uh, our script, our text again. Acts 13, 1 through 3. 
Now there were in Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manahim, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were there ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then they, when they had fasted and prayed, laid their hands on them and sent them away. Now, if there was ever a group of people that really didn't need to be together, it was, it was this group of people. Have you ever had people in your life, you either have a group of people or you have an individual person in your life over here? And then you have a group of people or an individual in your life over here, and you know to make sure that these people never get in the same room. Because you know if these people ever get in the same room together, it's just going to be a powder keg, and it's just going to explode everywhere, okay? We all have people like that in our lives. And, uh, you know, it's just, just can be stressful. So putting all of these people listed in verse 1, putting all these people in the same room should be a powder keg. First, let's talk about Barnabas and, and, and Saul. Okay, we've met Barnabas before in Acts. We've met him before. But of course, he wasn't called Barnabas. His name was Joseph. Okay, Acts 4, verse 36. Now, Joseph, a Levite of Siberian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land and sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here you have Barnabas. Barnabas is loyal. Barnabas is, is, is committed. He's encouraging. Every time you see Barnabas, he's got an encouraging word for you. Hey, brother. Hey, sister. I'm, I'm praying for you. I got a word of encouragement for you. Let me tell you about my devotion I read today. I think you'll get a lot out of it. He was just an encouraging person. That this is just, just who he was. He was so encouraging that the apostles changed his name. He might have said, you can't change my name. And they said, we're apostles. We can do whatever we want to. You're, you're Barnabas now. Bam, you're Barnabas. And so they just changed his name to Barnabas. Because he was just so encouraging all of the time. I mean, this is a guy who saw a need in the church. And he had a little plot of land out back. I don't know what he did with the land. Maybe he hunted on the land. Maybe it wasn't in, maybe it's where he had his deer camp at. Maybe it was an investment property. Maybe it's where he's going to build a little mother-in-law cottage, stick his mother-in-law out there in the woods. You know, who knows? But, but he had this little plot of land, but there was a need in the church, so he sold the land and laid the money at the apostles' feet. Why? Because that's just the type of person Barnabas was. Now, while Barnabas was selling the land and giving it to the apostles, at the same time, what was Saul doing at the same exact time? Acts chapter 8, 1 through 3. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. And Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women, and he would put them in prison. 
So that's what Saul was doing at the same time. Now, I can't say that Saul knew who Barnabas was, but I could almost guarantee with absolute certainty that Barnabas knew who Saul was. How could you not know who this guy was in this little tight-knit community who's going around and, and destroying lives and dragging men and women out on the street, beating them and throwing them in prison? How could you not know who this guy Saul was? So Barnabas knew who Saul was. Now these guys are going to church together. You come to Acts chapter 13. They're in the, ever been in those churches where you get this person comes in and sits over there on the pew? And then you see someone else come in and they sit over there on the pew and you're like, mm, what's going to happen today at church? Whoo, this is going to be a good one. You ever feel like, and, and so we have these guys going to the same church, but now they're praying together and they're fasting together. And they're worshiping together. Have you ever felt petty about somebody that wronged you? I have. Felt petty about just sometimes if we're not careful, we can get so resentful against people we don't want them to be blessed. We get so resentful against people we don't want them to have the forgiveness that we have. Okay? And that we've enjoyed. And maybe this thing that they did to you happened 10, 20, 30 years ago. Maybe even sometimes you can't even remember why you were resentful and bitter and mad towards this person. But listen, when me and you are resentful against people, it goes like so-and-so lied about me. So-and-so gossiped about me. So-and-so stole something from me. So-and-so said something about my spouse. So-and-so did this to my kids at school. And so-and-so, you know, it's all this kind of stuff. Well, you know what, Saul, you know what Barnabas was dealing with? Oh, this guy took my best friend, dragged my best friend and his wife out in the street, beat him and threw him in prison. I guarantee you, me and you aren't dealing with anything like that. No. Me and you aren't dealing with anything like that. And that's what the kind of stuff they were dealing with. We're not struggling with anything like that. But the gospel, here's what the gospel did. The gospel not only put them in the same church, the gospel put them in the same ministry. And so now these two are about to go out in the ancient world and they're going to plant churches all over the place. And... So the gospel creates a weird harmony amongst enemies. What the gospel can do. Now, you still have to fight for it. That doesn't mean it comes easy. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying it comes easy. You still have to fight for it. But then it kind of gets even weirder because then you got this guy called Manahin. Manahin, it says, who had been brought up with Herod, the, teach, the teacherarch. Why did the Bible have to tell us who his childhood friend was? Let me tell you something. The Bible doesn't name drop for, for no reason. When the Bible name drops, there, there's a reason. Okay? All right? There, there's a reason for it. You know who the, he's, they're talking about? They're talking about Herod Antipas. This is the Herod whose dad 
killed all the, the boys two years and under in Bethlehem. Remember that little, that little Bible story? You know? And then, and then this is the same guy. He killed his brother-in-law. He killed his mother-in-law. He killed his second wife. He married the ex-wife of his half-brother. He had John the Baptist beheaded. He wanted Jesus to entertain him. And when Jesus wouldn't perform a miracle for him, he sent him out to be crucified, but not before he beat the mess out of him. How easy would it be for this group of people to look at Manaheen and say, hey, uh, what's going on with your buddy over there? How in the world could you be friends with a guy like that? The church is beginning to do something that the world is really, really heavy on right now. And you know what that is? The, war, the, the, the church is beginning to do this thing where they will destroy your career and destroy your life over secondary association. Secondary association. Oh, you were there with that person? Canceled. Oh, you were over there in the next room when this happened? canceled and the church is doing the same thing but that kind of stuff doesn't happen in Antioch doesn't happen oh you're running with that crowd Ah, canceled that kind of stuff doesn't happen in this church I was a part of a church system one time that went like this this evangelist would go and preach at this church over here but then this other pastor would hear about it and say to the evangelist, you know what? I don't like the music that that pastor plays in his church. So because you went and preached at his church, I'm going to cancel your meeting at my church. And then I'm going to call all my pastor buddies and get all your meetings canceled at their churches. That kind of stuff doesn't go on in Antioch. It does not happen. And then... This letter goes back to Caesar. There's something divine among them. How can this be? How, I've, I've thrown everything at these Christians. I've thrown everything at them. How come they won't go away? They love each other too much. And then in this passage of Scripture in, in Acts 13, we've got so many different ethnicities here, it's hard to keep up with. Okay, first you got Barnabas. He's from Cyprus, so he's a Hellenistic Jew. Basically, that means he's a Greek Jew. And you've got Simeon. We don't know where he's from, but we know he's a black man. Some people say he's even the same Simeon that carried the cross of the Christ for him. We don't know that for certain, but Simeon here was a black man. Then you have Lucius of Cyrene. He's African. And then you have Manahim. He was a Palestinian. And then you got Saul. Saul was a Hebraic Jew. You couldn't have a more diverse group of people than this group of people. And with some of their past, you bring their past into it, man, this could be a powder keg waiting to blow up that could split the church wide open, and you don't see that. It's not what we see them doing. There's a new trendy word out. It's trendy. Trends on Twitter. And it's called triggered triggered the world is triggered we live in a society where one misspoken word can trigger people 
And when people of the world get triggered, they scream and cuss and punch and moan and weep and cry and roll around on the ground like a five-year-old. We live in a charged society, don't we? We're one little misplaced thing and the whole thing will blow up. We should not behave like the world. We should not behave like the world. Now, don't let me wrong. I'm not saying there was never any tension in this group. I can guarantee you there was tension in this group. The Bible records a lot of it. Okay, I'm not saying there was never any tension in this group. You're always going to have relational conflict. Why? Because we are human beings. And when humans are involved, uh, you know, there's going to be some conflict. That's just the way we are. But what that really shows us is how much of the grace of God we really need. We need grace to be able to, to get over these things. And it shows us that the gospel of Jesus, what it can do when it can bring people together. What am I supposed to do? I am supposed to give you the benefit of the doubt. I'm supposed to give you the benefit of doubt. I'm supposed to fight against my natural tendency for conflict. I'm supposed to fight against my natural tendency for war. I'm supposed to look for the silver lining in you. I'm supposed to pray for you. I'm supposed to prefer you above myself. I'm supposed to be patient for you. I'm supposed to be gracious to you. I'm supposed to carry your burdens. And, 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 and when we do that... We begin to look like what the Bible calls aliens and strangers in this present age. When you as a Christian are angry, you have a place to take your anger. The feet of Christ. The throne of grace. You have a place to take your anger. People of the world... They don't have a place to take their anger. That's why they take their, their anger to Facebook. Because they don't have a place to take their anger like me and you do. We have a place to take our anger. We can take our anger to Christ. We can lay it before the throne of grace. Who in here is carrying resentment? Think about it. Are you carrying resentment against somebody right now? Bitterness against somebody Right now, saved or lost, are you carrying resentment against them? You know this, but I'm going to tell you again, the only person losing is you. I was a teenager in church, and I, there was this man there in church. He was grown. He had a family. He had teenagers as kids, and I was a teenager, but me and him were really close. Me and him were buddies. We were really good buddies. And then I started to date his daughter. And we weren't buddies anymore. That kind of changed on me. It flipped, it flipped on me. He wasn't my friend anymore. And after two or three dates of me dating his daughter, he basically called me up and told me to get lost. And this was a girl that I really liked. And I was very resentful to him for a long time for that. And then a couple of years later, I'm back one, one summer, I'm home one summer from Bible college, and I see this guy, and I'm like, you know what? I'm done with this. I'm done with it. 
I let it go. So I went back there and I shook his hand. And I said, hey, brother, what's going on? And I went on. And from that day forward, I was done with it. I, I let go of that resentment. A year or two after that, he came up to me in church. And he said, Brett, I'm sorry for what I did for you. I'm sorry for the way I treated you. And he actually apologized to me. And it, I'm not going to lie, it felt good. But I wanted to let you know that I didn't need him to apologize to me. Because most of the time that doesn't happen. Most, I would say 90%, 99% even of the time in a resentful situation where there's resentment and bitter, bitterness, there's no closure. I just happened to get closure in that particular situation. So I, but, but I had already let it go. I didn't need him to apologize to me. I'm glad he did. But I'm here to tell you, a lot of times when you have to let go of resentment and let go of bitterness, you have to let go of it fully because you'll never get closure. Most of the time, that will never happen. So look, you've got to let go of this resentment. You've got to let go of this bitterness because it will, it, that resentment will kill our chance to show the world how we're supposed to act. Now, number two this morning, they were serious about hearing from God. They were serious about hearing from God. In three verses, they worshiped, prayed, and fasted in three verses. They did that twice in three verses. These people were serious about their relationship with God. Church wasn't a hobby for them. It was serious. Look, there are people that hunt for a hobby. I mean, they got their gun. They got the camo. They got the deer stand. And they go out and they hunt and it's a hobby. But then you got people that hunt and they are serious about it. We're talking ghillie suit, face paint, spraying on the deer urine. Okay? They are serious about hunting. And that's fine. That's fine. Okay? But the thing is, is what I'm afraid of is, is, is we don't, we don't, I think the reason why we don't take religion seriously is because we don't know how serious it really is. We don't understand it. Paul was not kidding around. Paul was not playing around when he said, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. He wasn't playing around when he said that. Our fight is not with flesh and blood. Your fight is not against a political party. Your fight is not against a liberal organization. Your fight is not against the news media. That's not what your fight is. And that's where a lot of Christians today are getting this thing wrong because they're fighting its man-made organizations when our fight is not against flesh and blood. That's not where the fight is. Okay, our fight is not against flesh and blood, principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, spiritual wickedness in high places. And we don't believe that anymore as Christians, because if we did believe it, we'd be praying in force. You can't 
put together a man-made organization that's going to fight against the powers of darkness that have been around since God created the heavens. You can't fight a spiritual battle with physical weapons. You have to fight a spiritual battle with spiritual weapons. And the problem is churches today don't believe it. If they did, their prayer meetings would be full. Our prayer meeting would be full if people believed it. But you know, this church believed it. Ian Bounds said this. What the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more novel methods, but men whom the Holy Ghost can use, men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but through men. He does not come on machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans, but men, men of prayer. And women, when you hear men in that quote, you can insert humankind. Okay, prayer is the job of the church. Daniel, he's praying. Man, he wants Israel to go back. He wants the children of Israel to go back to Israel. He wants them out of captivity. He's praying. Week goes by. Days go by. He hears no answer. And then finally an angel comes to him. <sighs> out of breath. <sighs> Give me a second. Oh. I was trying to get to you, Daniel. But then I was coming down and the prince of Persia come at me. And man, that dude is, is strong. We had to call in Michael the, Michael, the archangel, to come and help me. But we finally got through and I'm here to answer your prayer. If you're tired of living in the world you're living in, pray. Worship, fast, pray. Get serious about hearing from God and get serious about God hearing you. And get serious about the word. Let me tell you something. Every year that I'm alive, you know what I find out? That I love coffee more and more every year. Man, you come down here in Louisiana, you get that community coffee. That's some good stuff. Man, I love some coffee. But you know, coffee grounds, they don't taste too good. You ever drink down the bottom of a cup of coffee and you drink some grounds? so sick but you wouldn't take those grounds and just eat them with a spoon would you but man when you put that coffee in some hot water and you let it brew and just brews those heavenly nectars begin to come out okay and that coffee it just brews in that hot water i want you to brew in the word of god I want you to brew in it. I want you to brew in the word of God so much that you bleed it. That people get sick of how much you quote the scripture, of how much you quote the Bible. And not only that, but believe what the book says and pray, pray, pray. Brother Brad, I'm not good at praying. That's okay. Just pray what you, have you ever read some of the prayers of the men of God in the Bible? You ever hear David's prayer? Dear Lord, break their teeth in their mouths. Whoa, guy. I'm going to step over here. I'm going to pray over here if that's okay. You stay over there. Look, just pray what you know. Just pray what you know. 
Um, Look, you don't have to come up with some spiritual language to pray. Just pray, pray, pray. And then number three, and I think this is what the church needs to hear the most, is they took risks. They took risks. Let's read verses two and three again. While they were there ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So here we've got Barnabas, the son of encouragement. He's like, he's, he's like a, a golden retriever. Can I do anything for you? Can I do anything for you? Can I get anything for you? And he's just so encouraging. And he's always got a word of encouragement. And he's loyal. And he's committed to the church. And then over here you've got Paul. The Apostle Paul. Who penned more of the New Testament than any other man alive. Don't you think these two guys would be a great asset to that home church? But God said no. Set them apart and send them out. So that's exactly what they did. But I don't think we understand the history up to the the history of the church up to that point that had never been done before. It was the first time. Now there had been acts, there had been accidental missionaries, like hard persecution come against the church, and then the Christians scatter, and that's how the word gets out. There have been accidental missionaries before, but there had never been an organized effort to win people to Jesus like this before. It had never been done. Oh, and also there was no committee, there was no mission board, there was no survey. There was no demographics. There was no convention. They just went out on a call and power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what the church needs. The church needs takers. The church needs people who are who will run into danger, who will herald the gospel, uh, herald the gospel no matter the cost. We need some Christians that will charge the gates of hell with a squirt gun if God commands you to. That's what we need. Let me tell you something. My head's not in the sand. I look at the horizon of what we've got coming in our society, and it's not good. Let me tell you something. There's scary stuff on the horizon for us, especially these kids back here. There's scary stuff on the horizon for them. Let me tell you a little secret about Christians. We were built for scary stuff. We were built for scary stuff. That's what we thrive on. Look, all risk is, you know what it is? It's faith. It's biblically informed faith. We live in a world that wants to destroy us. But with the kind of access we have to God, what do we have to fear? I don't want to come to church as a hobby anymore. I want to attack hell. And I'm tired of taking shots. I'm ready to give some shots. Okay? So how are we going to do that? Well, we got to fight for harmony amongst ourselves. we got to get serious about this presence of God thing. And it also means prayerfulness. So what am I asking you to do today? If you've got any bitterness, if you've got any resentment in your heart, take that to God this morning. 
Lay that at his feet. Walk away from it. It doesn't matter how many years you've been holding on to it. Walk away from it because it's not hurting the other person. It's only hurting you. Walk away from it. Take it to the Lord. If you struggle with prayer, learn. Look, get with people who pray or pray all the time with people. Your choice. Your choice. You may say, oh, Brad, I I stumble when I pray and I fumble and I stumble when I do it and and I feel awkward and, and it sounds goofy. Well, stumbling, goofy, awkward prayer is still prayer. It's still prayer. And then let's get serious about this God's presence thing. Let's get serious about the church. I'm not saying you can't have fun. Look, that guy out in the woods with the ghillie suit and the face paint and the deer urine spray, he's not doing it because it's a chore. He's doing it because it's fun. So you can be serious about something and have fun while doing it. But man, the world needs to look at this community of people and say, there is something divine among them.